Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 133 for March 8, 2009. InDesign is now about 10 years old. And it was a beautiful child, able to set absolutely lovely type. If you go back 10 years to earlier reviews of the program, you'll find that's what I said when it first came out. The typesetting was lovely. But that's about all it did at the beginning. Around 2004, it had developed to the point that I was telling clients, InDesign is definitely the future. And around that time, I met Will Isley, product manager for InDesign, and he commented that the original release was a decent proof of concept but not a particularly useful program in the real world. At age 10, InDesign is still a beautiful child, but now it's capable of performing some impressive magic tricks. From the outside, InDesign CS4 and InCopy CS4 don't look a lot different from the CS3 versions. Looks are deceiving, though. Although there are some welcome new features that will be immediately obvious to users, most of the work on this version was done behind the scenes, This includes a complete rewrite of some of the major parts of InDesign's infrastructure, and indeed the infrastructure of the entire suite, because all of the applications run on the same code base. Now what that means in plain English is that if multiple CS4 applications need to perform the same task, each application calls the same section of code from what you could think of as a large library of routines. This approach has a lot of advantages. The two most significant probably are consistency across the suite and the need to write code to perform a specific task just once. And by a specific task, what I mean is, for example, rendering a photographic image on the screen. Most of the applications in the CS4 suite have the need to do that. As I've mentioned a time or two in programs dealing with other parts of Creative Suite 4, Adobe is now well positioned with tools to cover every type of communication, from print and web to audio and video. It's the result of an aggressive acquisitions program and, most recently, the merger with Macromedia. Not every merger goes well, but the teams from Adobe and Macromedia seem to have learned how to work together very well. Creative Suite 3 was released following the merger, but not long enough after the merger for us to see where the combined companies would go. Integration between applications and CS3 was impressive, given the amount of time the teams had to accomplish what they did, but integration in CS4 is far better. I talked with InDesign and InCopy Senior Product Manager Michael Ninnis, and we discussed the ability of InDesign and InCopy and the other applications in the Creative Suite to accept plugins and extensions from other software developers. It is this technique that allows the addition of new features to all of the applications. One important point to understand is that many of the extensions for InDesign also work with InCopy. One important distinction to make is that the InCopy and InDesign code base are shared. So when you saw you know, cross-references or hyperlinks or the links panel, the team isn't creating different versions of those features. They are the same feature. You know, they share the same code base. So anything that's scriptable in InDesign is also scriptable in InCopy if the feature exists in both places. 
So the entire code base is shared and is completely extendable. So if you write a plugin for InDesign, chances are if you wanted to as a developer, you could make that same plugin operate in InCopy if the plugin is you know, operating on a feature that's relevant to an InCopy user. Now, my understanding is that this version was essentially uh, a large chunk of it at any rate was rewritten from the ground up to specifically to allow for that kind of scripting. Is that correct? I think what you might be making reference to is IDML, InDesign Markup Language, and yes. then, of course, its corresponding ICML, which is InCopy Markup Language. And specifically, the, the, the why we did this, you know, what it is, have you, are you familiar with INX? Yes. Okay, so INX was our backwards compatibility file format, right? So if I'm a CS4 user and I need to interrupt with someone who's still using CS3, I would save out an INX file that the CS3 per, uh, person could then open and uh, continue to work on the document in that later, in that previous version. What INX was back in the day was an XML representation of our InDesign document, right? The InDesign document itself was proprietary. It was a binary file, and you couldn't peer inside it and, and operate on it. But you could, through INA, you could look at an INX file. And what our third-party developers and our um, editorial solution providers were intrigued by is they're like, huh, an, I, an INX file is basically an XML file. Well, I want to be able to do things to that, that document. I want to be able to peer inside it and extract data from it. I want to add my own data. Uh, I want to reconstitute and reuse portions of a document in other documents. Well, none of those use cases were really ever thought about when we wrote INX in the beginning. And we kept hearing this request from our, from our development partner saying, you know, we really want to do these types of things. Could you please consider that as a, as a valid use case? So when we started looking at it, we realized that INX was really never going to get us there. So we redid INX from the ground up, and it became IDML, which is InDesign Markup Language. That is now a full human-readable XML description of an undesigned document. You can crack open an IDML file or an ICML file in any XML editor and actually see the XML structure of the document. You can edit it outside the context of InDesign or InDesign Server or InCopy. Uh, you can connect it to a database and actually add you know, and flow new updated information into these particular files. All this can be done outside the context of InDesign, InCopy, or InDesign Server. You still need InCopy, InDesign, or in, uh, InDesign Server to render the result and then turn it into its final form, whether that be a PDF or a printed document or whatever. So yes, there was a massive re-architecture of the underlying file format that can be used to exchange uh, and interop between InDesign and other document types. That whole story, I think, illustrates what I have considered to be one of the strengths of Adobe that over, over the at least the past four or five years that I've really paid attention to what's going on is Adobe seems to really listen to customers. Yeah, you know, that's one of the, the joys of, of being a product manager here is that that's our whole job is to try to internalize what we're hearing and then represent that in a generic way. Like what I love about IDML is that it provides this foundation where people can start doing things with it that we didn't even imagine. It's a generic enough implementation where it becomes a basic building block that can be used as a starting point to do anything crazy that, you know, that you might want to do. There's a, another re-architecture part that, that happened in CS4 that I, I don't often get a chance to talk about, but since you're asking, I'm going to bore you with it. <laughs> it's the, uh, the, the links re-architecture. You saw some evidence of some rework by the links panel. That was just a UI change. What a lot of people don't realize is behind the scenes, we completely rewrote our links architecture as well. And the end benefit of that, there, there's no customer-facing proof of this, but for our third-party developers, they can create custom link types now. What I mean is that anything can be a link. 
It used to be that a link in InDesign or InCopy was literally pointing to a file on disk, typically an image, right? I'm linking to this TIFF file or this PSD file. In CS4 land, a developer can make a link to anything, and links can be bidirectional. So for instance, if you wanted to integrate InDesign or InCopy with a database or a content management system, a developer could create a custom link to their particular database of choice down to a specific field in a record and populate the text from that field inside the InDesign layout. By it being bidirectional, if I make my text change inside the InDesign document, that text change can be sent back to the database. So it's a bi-directional feed. And far from being boring, that's fascinating. It's a little geeky for some folks. but <laughs> That's all right, too. <laughs> what's really neat now is that if you combine the links architecture with IDML, now you've got some crazy things that are possible. Yes. I can connect to a database and generate documents completely outside the context of InDesign and in and InDesign Server. And then I can update and modify these IDML documents behind the scenes. When these are all done in an automated fashion, I then use InDesign or in, InDesign Server to reconstitute that updated IDML file back into an InDesign document or back into a PDF or whatever it is I'm trying to achieve. I would think that you would probably have some people who create catalogs that would be salivating at this point. That's exactly right. That is the typical use case for it. But now that you have these building blocks, we're seeing people doing some amazing things with these, these basic building blocks. The kind of cool thing, too, is that because InDesign Server is basically a headless version of InDesign, you can use some of Adobe's other technologies like the Air Runtime or Flex to create any custom front end you want and have that interface, say, be run in a browser. There's a, there's a great website you should check out called um, Brand Doozy. Uh, it's kind of a funny name, but if you Google Brand Doozy, D-O-O-Z-I-E, this is a great example of some of the things I'm talking about. Okay. They have a, uh, a web service, a web portal, basically, for modifying templates. They're marketing to the small, medium business who wants professionally designed looking marketing materials, uh, sales sheets, data cards, business cards, simple brochures, things like that. They want it to look professional, so they don't necessarily have the skill set to be using InDesign themselves, but they might hire a designer to create some templates. And then these templates show up in a web browser, and the regions that can be modified are selectable inside the browser. They make their, their, their changes. When they hit submit, those changes are sent back to InDesign Server, and a preview is regenerated, and it's turned into the final print, printed document behind the scenes. Wow. All of that is being done with these three building blocks. You mm -hmm. have the links architecture that lets you make a connection to the database. You've got the IDML. You've got InDesign Server behind the scenes. And then you have the Flex and Flash Player being able to create you know, custom front ends to all that feature set. So as a developer, you don't have to worry about all the overwhelming choices that are available inside a product like InDesign. You can trim it down to just the feature set that your particular user cares about. You're listening to an interview with InDesign and InCopy Senior Product Manager Michael Ninnis. We also spent some time considering the new features of InCopy and how InCopy works to speed the workflow by allowing editors and designers to work on the same document simultaneously. The four P's that make up InCopy are parallel workflow, page visualization, editorial productivity, so there's that P, and portability. By parallel workflow, what I mean is that editors slash writers can work on the editorial content, the written content, at the same time that the, the layout designer, the page designer, can be working on the layout. They actually are sharing the same document, the same file, 
and each one is able to do their particular task without stepping over each other. Uh, the InDesign InCopy workflow manages this check-in and check-out process through something called the Assignments feature. What this lets you do is control which person has the rights to edit a particular section of a document. Both sides of the equation get notified when a particular you know, file is checked out. You get notified when it's checked back in. So it allows parallel workflow. People can be working in tandem without having to wait for design changes and for copy changes to come back in. So that really speeds up production uh, and reduces time to market. The page visualization piece, that's what separates uh, an in-copy InDesign workflow from something like a Word in InDesign workflow, meaning the writer and the editor can write in context of the designer's layout. So we have the layout view inside InCopy, uh, also the galley view. Both of those two views provide the visual context to the writer and the editor so they can actually see how what they're writing is fitting into the actual context of the design. Editorial productivity, that's all about uh, editorial shortcuts that are found in, in, in older you know, word processing applications or writing applications, things like text macros and tons of keyboard shortcuts and whatnot. This is a set of features that are specific to InCopy that aren't necessarily found inside InDesign, mainly because the, the, the person using InCopy is typically not the layout designer. So they're feature specific to that role. Portability is this, this fourth piece, the idea of email-based assignment. In the early days of InCopy, the idea was that you would set up a central server and your assignments would go to you know, the server and people would be checking things in and out of that. One of the things that we realized was that not every uh, freelancer, let's say, has access to get behind a firewall of a, of a corporation. So you may not want to expose your, your, your network to external workers, uh, or you just might want to have a lighter weight infrastructure. So the idea of an email-based assignment is that from within InDesign, you can package up an in-copy assignment into an in-copy package file. And then that can be emailed to your writer who's using InCopy. When they receive this single packaged file, InCopy can unzip it, unpackage it. You get your work, you do your assignment, you do your editing, whatever. When you're all done, you package it back up and send it back to the InDesign person. And then the InDesign person can unpack that, and everything gets fit back together the way it should be. What all is in that pack? Basically, the, the individual assignment files. Yes. What you see on the receiving end is just a single file. So the, the receiver of a package doesn't really have to be exposed to the guts of what's inside it. But basically, every assignment is a, an in-copy assignment file with all the various parts inside the content folder. And that works uh, cross-platform, so if, uh, if uh, as I see, you're on a Mac, yeah, you send me one, and I'm uh, Absolutely. on a PC. Absolutely. So it's really meant for the people that, you know, the smaller work group, which doesn't have, say, an editorial workflow system like a K4 or a Woodwing-type solution. They don't have the budget for, you know, that kind of uh, workflow system. So this is a way to enable portability, where you, you have this ability to work very fluidly with freelancers in a, in a kind of a more lightweight environment. Michael Ninnis is the InDesign and InCopy Senior Product Manager at Adobe. We spoke recently. You might be wondering why there are two applications, InDesign and InCopy. Well, here's kind of a quick and very basic example of how the two applications work together. The document is going to be created in InDesign. The document creator there needs to establish an assignment. So the designer, the person working in InDesign, the person who has placed the graphics and has now placed an article, creates an assignment. The InCopy editor opens the document in InCopy, and because of the way the assignment was established, the InCopy user is allowed to edit any of the text in the main article, but the editor is unable to touch any other text or any of the graphics. Once the editor checks out the document using InCopy, 
The designer using InDesign will no longer be able to edit the text, but at this point the designer could still be working on other parts of the document, moving graphics around, or, for example, adding other articles on other pages. The editor using InCopy might examine the document in the Story Editor view to see how much text must be edited to make the document fit the allotted space. Once the editor fits the copy to the design, it's important to check the document back in. That allows the designer to continue working on it in InDesign. So the overall advantage is this. Work can go forward on a given document on multiple fronts simultaneously. And here's a feature that might cause you to ask, Why did they do that? The ability to create a flash presentation in InDesign. Well, here's why. People who design documents for print increasingly are being asked to create something for use on a website. But writers and print designers often aren't proficient in HTML or web technologies. That makes InDesign's ability to create a flash file particularly welcome. The flash output from InDesign reminds me of what Corel's now discontinued Rave application produced. The files were compressed flash movies that would play, but did not have what was needed to be imported into flash and then be modified. Adobe partially solved that problem with a new file format, XFL. It's an interchange file format. Save the flash presentation from InDesign as XFL, then open it in flash for editing. I said partially solved, because the XFL format allows you to import the presentation into Flash and edit it, but most of the animations and transitions that you might have created in InDesign will be gone, so you'll need to recreate those in Flash. This is still a lot better than having to start from scratch, and solving the rest of the problem might be something for Adobe's programming staff to work on for a future release. And yes, you can create animations in InDesign. If you're designing strictly for print, animations and transitions will be pointless. But few designers design just for print these days. Magazines, newspapers, and even books are often ported to or adapted to the web. So if the publication is going to be going to the web, the designer can create page turn effects, dissolves, wipes, and fades. Another feature that's meaningless in a print-only world is the ability to create hyperlinks. But again, if the designer needs to create a PDF or target the information for the web, This can be a huge time saver. These are features that clearly illustrate Adobe's understanding of modern communication. Any print document is almost sure to be used in at least one electronic format. So InDesign is now a superb tool for designing and preparing print documents, but the development team has its eye on what designers are going to need in the future. Globalization means that documents may need to be developed in several languages. InDesign's new conditional text feature is a plus when you have to do that. I do have to say that this is one of the features I begged for when I met with the InDesign programmers back in 2004 or 2005. Conditional text allows the user to show or hide specific bits of text. For example, you might need to show prices in dollars for the U.S. market, pounds in Great Britain, euros in much of Europe, or rubles in Russia. Or maybe you have a textbook with a teacher's edition. The teacher's edition needs to include teaching suggestions, answers to questions, and illustrations that aren't in the student copy of the book. Or maybe you have a file that's used to produce both a wholesale and a retail version of a catalog. You can do this with one file instead of having to create two files. It saves a lot of time and a lot of effort. Conditional text can be applied to paragraphs, words, or characters so that just one file can be used in place of multiple files. 
Knowing what to expect is important for print designers. It's an imperfect world out there because the monitor represents colors using the RGB color space, red, green, blue. And print represents colors in the CMYK color space, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Monitors add colors. Printing on paper subtracts colors. The InDesign preflight panel manages preflight profiles that need to be matched to the expected output. So a profile might contain, for example, just the color space specification, or it might include information about transparency blending, stroke weight, warnings about Pantone colors in a CMYK workflow, notices when there's too much text, and others. The goal is for the designer not to have unpleasant surprises after the project has been sent to the press or worse, after a million copies have been printed. Live preflight works rather like a live spelling checker. It's on all the time and provides immediate feedback when it senses a problem. This allows the designer to be aware of a problem early in the process and not have to scramble to fix a surprise problem following a 3 a.m. panic phone call from the printer. When live preflight notices a problem, it provides a page number and a brief description of the problem. Click the page number, you'll find yourself on the page with the problem, and a little red dot beside the problem. Very easy to find. When the error condition is resolved, InDesign removes the error warning from the window, and the designer or editor can then move on to the next problem. These are the kinds of features that speed the editing and design process and allow the publication staff to create the best possible document in the least possible time. So everybody wins, and that includes the reader. And the bottom line on InDesign and InCopy is this. If print and web designers aren't dancing in the streets, they should be. But I'm confused. Should InDesign and InCopy receive five cats or four? Given the capabilities of the applications, it seems a shame to award just four cats to InDesign and InCopy. The feature set is both broad and deep. The applications play well with their siblings. They are robust and reliable. In fact, the only justification I could think of for withholding one cat from the rating is that I know some future version of InDesign and InCopy, 18 to 20 months from now, will probably raise the bar even higher. If I forget about what Magic Adobe might work in the future, then today's version of InDesign and InCopy clearly earn five cats. Or six. Or maybe more. But I have to stop at five because five is as high as my scale goes. If you're using an earlier version... Now is the time to upgrade. And about that, I am not confused. For more information, check the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and you'll find links to the Adobe InDesign and Adobe InCopy websites. The message claimed to be from Garnett Dalton, but the email address was for an N. Certiori. It was signed by Michael Bernard, and he said his email address was Friedman519. So before I'd read any of the message, I knew it was a fraud. Of course, the fact that Garnett or Michael or whoever he was was thanking me for my interest in the mystery shopper position was a pretty good clue, too. I do not like to shop. It is unlikely that I would be applying for a mystery shopper position. The message had already been marked as spam, but it was Sunday and I was playing in the trash. So I wondered, what's the game? Mystery shopper programs do exist, of course. And the spam told me that the mystery shoppers are important because they observe how store employees interact with customers during their normal daily routines. To be a mystery shopper, I would pose as an ordinary customer and provide feedback of both factual observations and my own opinions. 
quoting what's-his-name, our company partners with you to implement proven mystery shop auditing and surveying strategies that provide critical information about customer experiences. It promised I would be paid a commission of $100 for every duty I carry out and a bonus on my transportation allowance. Uh, Bells are ringing here. A bonus on my transportation allowance? So what kind of person can be a mystery shopper? Well, they're looking for someone who is 21 years of age or older. Okay, I passed that. Uh, loves to go shopping. Ah, sorry, no sale there, literally. Uh, is fair and objective? Eh, sometimes. I am on time. Yeah, I agree with that. Most of the time I'm on time. Observant. <laughs> yes. And fairly intelligent. Thanks. Uh, the shopper also needs to be patient, detail-oriented, practical, trustworthy, and discreet. Beginning to sound like a Boy Scout. I would also have to handle deadlines and have full Internet access. Oh, and final requirement, I'd have to be able to type well. The message invited me to send my information to Michael Bernard at Best Surveys, 505 Barranca Parkway, Irvine, California, so that they could look for locations in my area that need to be evaluated. Google Maps and the U.S. Postal Service are helpful in evaluating addresses, and I quickly found that 505 Barranca Parkway does not exist in Irvine, California. The address would probably be in Santa Ana, except that the road ends before it gets there. So if I had any doubt that these folks are up to no good, the picture was now becoming much more clear. And a quick Google search revealed the scam for what it is. Someone who applied for one of the jobs quoted the response that he received from Michael Bernard. And here's what the response said. We are currently making evaluations for Visa to detect unsecure stores. Your task is to find any store in your area which is part of the Visa system. They usually have a Visa logo in the window, but does not require PIN on a transaction over $1,000. Bernard promised to, and I quote, provide you with a personal shopping card which you will use to make the purchases. Now let's think about that card. That card is certainly going to have my name on it. In fact, I imagine it will be issued by the bank in my name as soon as Best Surveys gets enough information from me to request the card. Quoting Bernard again, If the store will ask for the PIN code, then you can simply cancel the order, as the store is secure and does not need to be evaluated by us. Once you find an unsecured store that doesn't ask for the PIN to secure the transaction, you will complete the order just like a regular shopper. Oh, the hook is being set. Then I would have to ship the item that I purchased along with all receipts and papers via FedEx to Best Surveys so that, and I quote the spam, one of our investigative agents will take them back to the store while conducting his evaluation, and I'll be paid once per week. Now, why would I ship goods to California so that their investigator could bring them back to a store in Ohio? More quotations from the wondrous Michael Bernard. In order to avoid shipping overcharges, it is recommended that you order items small in size and weight. For example, don't purchase 10 printers when you can purchase a laptop and still have the amount of over $1,000. The job is based on commission. You will receive $100 for each unsecured store you detect. Our existing shoppers usually detect at least one per day. So if I sign up, exactly what is my status? I would have a new credit card with at least one $1,000 purchase on it, maybe more. And when the credit card company calls me to ask if I've made those purchases, I would, of course, confirm that I had. After all, I'm testing their security. Best Surveys would have the goods and all the receipts. They can then return those goods for credit or pawn them or just sell them outright on eBay. When the credit card bill comes, I'll be the one on the hook. 
and I won't be able to say that somebody stole the card because I still have it. Questions and answers. Sometimes I get questions, and sometimes I provide answers. Occasionally, those answers even have something to do with the question that was asked. And every now and then, the answer is actually correct. So here's a question. I use my computer primarily for word processing, and it's time to buy a new machine. I know that I'll need at least 4 gigabytes of RAM, but should the computer be dual-core or quad-core? I'm not concerned about the size of the disk drive, because I'll keep files that I don't need very often on an external hard drive. Wow, it's hard to imagine more incorrect assumptions in a single question. So let's start with the RAM. You should install a maximum of 3 gigabytes of RAM if you're running a 32-bit version of XP or Vista, because 32-bit operating systems can use between 3 and 4 gigabytes, and that includes all the memory on your video card. The 64-bit versions of Vista and the upcoming Windows 7 technically would be able to address 16.8 million terabytes of RAM. That's 16 exabytes. I say technically because nobody is making main boards that will accept that much RAM, nor are they likely to. The 64-bit version of Vista and Windows 7 have artificial limits of 128 gigabytes of RAM, so 4 gigabytes isn't a bad starting point if you know you'll be upgrading to a 64-bit version of Windows. Or maybe not, because I'm hearing that Windows 7 works reasonably well with just 1 gigabyte of RAM. In any event, if you choose to install more RAM than your current operating system is able to use, you should probably at least know why you're doing that. Now let's consider the CPU. Word processors spend most of their time waiting for people to press a key, even those people who type really, really fast. Set up a system monitoring tool to watch CPU usage when Word is open. Most of the time it'll be at 95% to 99% system idle process. What this means is that CPU power isn't a big deal unless you're working with audio, video, or large images. For normal use, a 2 GHz dual-core CPU with 2 to 3 GB of RAM will be plenty. My computer, for example, is nearly 3 years old, and I use some high-end audio applications and occasionally some video applications. It's a 2.6 GHz dual-core CPU with 2 GB of RAM and a 768 MB video card. As for hard drives, you're not going to find too many under 100 GB these days, and many machines come with 500 GB to 1 terabyte drives. Be better off storing all your files on the main hard drive and using an external for backup. Otherwise, you're going to have situations in which you're not sure where the file you want is, and if you have a copy on each drive, which is the most current. By the way, the idea of 4 terabytes of physical memory, much less 16 exabytes of address space, is a bit mind-blowing. To help you wrap your head around the scale this involves, consider this. A DVD holds 4.7 gigabytes of data. It can store more than two hours of high-quality MPEG-2 video. 250 DVDs contain about a terabyte of data. The largest physical library in the world, the U.S. Library of Congress, has about 20 terabytes of text. The Internet Archive, which maintains what it thinks is a full copy of all the information available on today's Internet, holds a little over a petabyte, that's 1,000 terabytes of data, and is growing at over 20 terabytes a month. An exabyte could contain 1,000 copies of today's entire Internet archive. The source for that information, by the way, is Apple. In nerdly news, so you're just sitting there minding your own business on Facebook, at least as much as you can mind your own business on Facebook, and suddenly you receive a message. It's an invitation to watch a video, or it's an invitation to dinner. 
Aura noticed that one of your friends has faced some errors when checking your profile. You click the link that's provided and you're told that you must load or update the Adobe Flash plugin. You click the link to do that and you've just been had. The message may appear to come from someone you know, but the Flash plugin link is, of course, bogus. It's the latest iteration of what's called the Kube Face Worm, and you may find it on MySpace, Google Talk, Live Journal, My Yearbook, Friendster, High Five, Bebo, and lots of other social networking sites. And when I say you've been had, here's what I mean. The link runs an application that installs a Trojan horse program. That application gives the creeps who wrote the worm control of your computer. Trend Micro says the worm will then start sending out similar requests purporting to be from you to all of your contacts. So be wary of anything that arrives by way of email. Be doubly wary of anything that arrives at a semi-public social networking address. The best advice is simply not to click links. If somebody tells you that you need the Adobe Flash Player, go to the Adobe site by typing www.adobe.com and download the application from there. If somebody who has never, ever invited you to dinner, and probably never will, sends you a message that claims to be inviting you to dinner and offering a link to click, don't click the link. Contact the person by some other means. Phone, email, telegram, walk to their office, send them a carrier pigeon, a ransom note, do something, but confirm the invitation offline. All this is the Internet equivalent of being street smart. Where do you go if you want to buy an electronic book for your iPhone or your iPod Touch? You could, of course, go to the Apple Store, and that is exactly what Apple would like you to do. But as of this past Wednesday, another choice was available, Amazon. You'll need to download a free application from Amazon, Kindle for iPhone and iPod Touch. Then you'll have access to 240,000 e-books that Amazon.com sells. Amazon is the nation's largest bookseller, and it clearly sees a trend developing, a trend away from physical books and toward electronic versions of books. That's why Amazon has its own reader device, the Kindle. But other devices, such as those by Apple, can also be used to read e-books. A phenomenon that I noticed when I started spending a lot of time in New York City in the mid-1980s is that people in New York read a lot. Newspapers are common on the subway, of course, but so are books. If books become something that everyone can carry in a device that they already take with them wherever they go, I'm thinking this trend could spread. Devices such as the Kindle, iPhone, or iPod Touch are ideal for those kinds of situations in which you would consider reading if you had a book handy, maybe waiting in a doctor's office or standing in line at a grocery store or a bank for those few people who actually still go into a bank to conduct business and therefore have to wait. Amazon sees its device as a complete replacement for books and believes that Apple's products are more suitable for brief periods of reading. So Amazon sees a market for people who may not have their Kindle with them, but who may still want to spend a little time with a book. As smart as Steve Jobs is, this may reveal a situation where Apple has been outsmarted by Amazon. Jobs has been quoted as saying, top people don't read anymore, but maybe they do. Maybe that's how those top people got to the top. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.